It's hard to believe that yet again, we have rounded the corner into the month of December. I think the older you get, the faster it seems that the years fly. It is, uh, it's really hard to believe and yet here we are. And of course, every year we have our calendars full with all kinds of traditions, uh, friends and family and far too much food are always a part of the holiday season. And yet as believers, we hopefully understand the importance of keeping the real primary reason for Christmas always before our eyes. I think it's especially important for us because Christianity, of course, is not the only religion in the world and it's not the only religion that has traditions and holidays. Most of the major religions have their own special days and their own holidays and traditions. And so the question we need to be able to answer for ourselves and for our children and for the world is why is Christianity to be believed and followed over and above every other so-called religion? How can we have confidence that the truths that we celebrate at Christmas make the religion of Christianity true while all other forms of religion are idolatrous, as Paul would say, the doctrines of demons? Many would claim it takes faith to believe in any religion, so the world would say perhaps it's not that different. We say we're saved by grace through faith. Others have faith in other things. Why is our faith in Christ different than someone's faith in the truths that they claim to be true of Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism? Well, this Christmas season, I want us to understand that while we believe the gospel and the teachings of scripture by faith, our faith is not blind. God calls us to trust him by faith, but he does so while also giving us real tangible evidences and witnesses to the truth that he demands that we believe. He doesn't say just believe the gospel because I said so. He backs up his words with undeniable miracles and historical events that prove that his words are trustworthy. So this Christmas season, I want us to spend the next three Sundays reminding ourselves yet again of one of those key historical events through which God testified to the reality that Jesus of Nazareth was not simply a good man, but he was in fact the God man, the eternal son of God, the Messiah sent to redeem God's people from their sins. And to do that, we're going to look at something that's uh, perhaps unexpected, different from years past. Instead of studying the miraculous details of the birth of Christ himself, we're going to back up and study the historical account of the birth of his forerunner, John the Baptist. It's recorded for us in Luke chapter one. The reason we're gonna do that is because the express purpose of John's ministry was to prepare the way for the Messiah and to identify the Messiah so that all the world could see this is the savior of the world, repent and believe in him. In the coming weeks, we'll look a lot at John's role and how he fulfilled that role, but I just wanna remind you right out of the gate at how clearly John the Baptist testified to the true identity of who Jesus is. In John chapter one, the gospel of John chapter one, verses 29 to 34, listen to these words. The next day, he, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified saying, I have seen the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the son of God. I don't know about you, but I think that's about as clear as someone could be in testifying to the reality of the fact that Jesus Christ is the son of God who came to save sinners. And this is John, this is John's clear testimony. We have it on public record that John said his role was to identify and prepare the way for the Messiah. And John pointed to Jesus of Nazareth, of, of Nazareth rather, and said, this is the man. Of course, that brings up the question for us, how can we be sure that John's testimony is trustworthy? On the flip side of that, we could say it positively, if we can prove that John's testimony is trustworthy, then his testimony must be accepted as fact. And so we're gonna make it our aim this, Christian, this Christmas season to analyze the trustworthiness of John and we'll do so with the express purpose of proving that Jesus Christ is indeed the one true Messiah, the Son of God. But before we dive into the details of this account in Luke chapter one, we're gonna do what we always do, what we need to do, which is understand a little bit about the context leading up to this passage. Of course, the Gospel of Luke is written by Luke the physician. This is the same Luke that was the traveling companion of the apostle Paul, a good friend to Paul and a ministry companion. This same Luke would go on to pen the book of Acts, giving us a record, a historical record of the birth and growth of the local church. And from his writing, both in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts, we can see that Luke was a man who cared about accuracy, about details. He took this role seriously. He wrote really as a, a true historian, an inspired historian. We see that his efforts explain for us in the opening verses of Luke chapter one. Verse one, he says, "'Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you've been taught. Obviously, Luke took this role seriously. He investigated everything carefully from the beginning. We don't know who this man Theophilus was, but the fact that he calls him most excellent is a clue. He's probably a wealthy man of upper class wealth. We don't know why Luke sought to write this account specifically for him, but we know that the Holy Spirit obviously intended for this to go far beyond just a, a, a writing for one man. This was a gospel witness that would be a testimony to the world. Each of the gospel writers record their uh, facts about Christ really centered on a theme 
They want us to understand something specific about who Jesus was. And the theme of the, of the gospel of Luke, as you read the, the, the whole of the gospel, is Jesus as the son of man. That title, son of man, comes from the book of Daniel. It is a prophecy that the Messiah would, would be called by this name. And Luke refers to him by that name consistently. All the other gospel writers include the testimony of John the Baptist to Jesus. That's not unique to Luke. But what is unique to Luke is God's testimony to John. Here we have the divine witness of the validation of who John the Baptist was from God himself. Therefore, that validates the testimony of John, which is the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. So let's read verses five to 13. This will be the section that we cover this morning. Ultimately, over the next three weeks, we'll cover verses five to 25. But let's read verses five to 13. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will give him the name John. As we unfold this narrative account together, we're gonna to come away with really one major idea. This is the point, this is why Luke includes this here for us. God undeniably validates John so that we might confidently believe in Jesus. That's really the point. God undeniably validates John so that we might confidently believe in Jesus. That's the theme that we will unpack in the, today and the weeks to come. And as any good narrative does, this breaks down into several scenes. The first scene here we have is the setting, verses five to seven. He begins in verse five, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Now this is a, a quick historical note. The idea is to give us a time frame and some idea of the, the temperature of the culture at the time, what was happening at that time. The original audience immediately upon hearing that this was under the reign of Herod would have had an idea of what that means and who this was. Similarly to the way that we have an immediate frame of reference to different periods of history in, in American history by the naming of the president that was presiding over the US at that time. So if I begin a story and I say during the administration of President Lincoln, 
Hopefully you remember enough from school that brings back some pretty important historical events that happened in our culture, in our nation at that time. And so we have a a framework for what was going on in the US. Unfortunately, we didn't live at the time that the Gospel of Luke was written. And so the mention of Herod may not bring up similar historical memories. Now, I don't wanna go too far down this rabbit trail because this is not the point of Luke's account, but I do wanna give you just enough that you'll be in tune with what the audience would have understood when they heard the fact that this happened under the reign of Herod. Because when you read the the New Testament, especially the book of Acts, what you'll learn is this name Herod becomes a popular name for rulers that succeed him, his, his sons and grandsons and so on and so forth. But this is the Herod, this is Herod the Great as he's known by history. He ruled roughly from 37 BC to 4 AD. And the reason he's called Herod the Great is because he did some great public works, we'll call them. One of the greatest of his public works was the temple that he built for the Jews in Jerusalem. This was Herod's temple, the temple that Jesus would have gone to, the temple that the events of, that unfold here in this story happen in. This is the temple that Herod built for the Jews. Herod was not a Jew, but Herod was a politician. And Herod was the king of the Jews. And so he knew I've got to appease these people and, and hopefully get them on my side. And so he built for them an ornate, magnificent temple, the foundation stones of which are still there in Jerusalem today. But unfortunately, this Herod was not great when it comes to morality. This was a man known for his paranoia and his cruelty to the point that he, in his later years especially, became so paranoid of of losing his rule that he would kill his wife and even some of his own sons because they were a threat to his rule, as he saw it anyway. And this is, of course, the Herod that's infamous for killing the children surrounding the town of Bethlehem in an attempt to murder the Messiah. This is that Herod. So it gives you some marker of time, some idea of what the people would have understood when they read the words in the days of Herod. But Herod is not the primary character at all. This is really the only information we're given about Herod. He's simply given, because he was the king of the area at the time, the key characters are now introduced to us. And there are two primary characters. The first one is listed here in the middle of verse five. There was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. This is main character number one. Zacharias is our first main character. In your Bible, it may have him as Zachariah. Don't be thrown off by that. Zacharias is the Greek version of his name. Zachariah is the Hebrew version of his name. Same guy, different spellings. This is a, a man that was, is described as a priest. You remember the priest could only serve as priest by blood. It was a, there was a genealogical record kept from the bloodline of Aaron. That means that, that this man, Zacharias, was in that bloodline. The priesthood at the time was broken into 24 different divisions. We see this, we won't turn there, but in 1 Chronicles 24, if you wanna write that down, that's where it describes how the priests were broken into these 24 divisions. The eighth of those divisions is this division of Abijah that he is assigned to here. Now, why put the priests in so many divisions? 
It's because there were too many of them to serve simultaneously at the temple at any one time. When you hear priest, you probably think of a full-time job of being at the temple every day and doing the things that we understand from the old covenant that priests did. But there were too many of them for that to be practical. And so what actually happened is they divided them into these 24 divisions and they would have come to the temple, actually in Zacharias's case, for only two weeks of the year. Two separate times he would come for one week of service. And that's all the time that he would have there. He would work a different job throughout the rest of the year. At this time, commentators say historically there were roughly 18,000 active priests that would rotate through and serve. And so Zacharias is one of them. But there's a second major character mentioned here and it's his wife. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. Now the fact that Elizabeth too is from the bloodline of Aaron is not insignificant. We can't just read past that because the law only required that a priest marry a godly woman who was pure. Leviticus 21 verse seven says, they shall not take a woman who is profaned by harlotry, nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband for he is holy to his God. That was the regulation for a priest. Now the regulations for the marriage of a high priest added to that standard, they were even higher, later in the same chapter, Leviticus 13 to 15, he, the high priest, shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman, or one who is profaned by harlotry, these he may not take, but rather he's to marry a virgin of his own people, so that he will not profane his offspring among his people, for I am the Lord who sanctifies him. Now, Zacharias was not a high priest, but it seems that he went the extra mile and he took to himself the regulations for marriage for the high priest and he married accordingly. That's the significance of the fact that Elizabeth is from the bloodline of Aaron as well. This is a, a true priestly family through and through. They were the model priestly family, if you will. They would have been exemplary and that would have been an, an honorable match in the eyes of the Jewish people. But not only are they noteworthy and respectable because it was a good match, they actually were devout in their faith and righteous in their character. And we see this in verse six, they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Now, obviously we know scripture well enough to understand that this is, this is not saying that they were sinless, perfect people. Of course they were not. But it is interesting that this is not just Luke's perspective or, or the historical record from others who knew them, but it says in the sight of God, they were righteous. He gives us the inspired uh, view of them from the sight of God. These are righteous people. They're sincere believers, true Jewish believers who really followed Yahweh, the one true God. They, they sought to live moral lives. The, the law for them was not just tradition. This was what they did. They lived this way. They were, it was real to them. Of course, we know that significance because we know the rest of the gospels. We know that for the vast majority, unfortunately, of the Jewish leaders, it was a political position. Even for the Pharisees who were devout, at least outwardly, to their commitment of the law, we know that Jesus revealed their hearts were not truly devoted to the Lord. So here we have a couple that's the real deal. Great match in their marriage and a great match in their morality in the sense that they truly follow the Lord. 
But there's more to the story. Apparently, this dear couple has lived in a lifelong trial, a trial that has been a part of their marriage since the beginning. Because verse seven says, but they had no child. And it gives us the reason because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. Like so many other couples in history, Zacharias and Elizabeth have sought to have a child, but that blessing has sadly evaded them. Elizabeth was barren, of course, meaning her, her womb seemed to be physiologically incapable of carrying a child. And to add insult to injury, whatever shred of hope that they maintained year after year as they prayed for a child has now been vanquished because it says they were advanced in years. The, the indication there means they were advanced in years, they were in old age. They were at the point that we would all understand from a medical standpoint, childbearing for Elizabeth was not gonna happen. It just was humanly impossible. Now, childlessness is a difficult trial that, that many unfortunately experience even today. And, and if you're walking through that, please understand in, in talking through these things, I'm not being insensitive to that. We pray for you in that and God will be good to you in that. But it's a difficult trial. It's a, it is hard when you pray and pray for a child and it doesn't come. It's hard even today in our culture that doesn't value children the way that it should. But in this culture, in the culture that they're living in, there was another insult added to this injury and that is the fact that among the Jewish people, childlessness was not just a sad trial that a couple had to walk through, it was seen as a sign of God's judgment, of some, some stain on the reputation of that couple that while they, they sure seem to be righteous, there must be something under the surface that we don't know about that God is disciplining them for by not allowing them to have a child. Now, to be fair, that, that comes from a misunderstanding of real scripture. Deuteronomy 28.4 says, blessed shall be the offspring of your body, that is, you will have children, and the produce of your ground and the offspring of your beasts, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. This was God's expression to the nation of Israel under the old covenant that when they were obeying him, generally he would bless the nation with offspring. And he says the opposite is true if they disobey later in the same chapter, but it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And one of the curses in verse 18, cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground, the increase of your herd, and the young of your flock. Now, these are true principles that God really meant for the nation as a whole, that when the nation walked away from God, they nationally would experience these curses, but he did not mean for it to be taken as an individual uh, rubric for judging the morality of each individual person all the time. We know from the book of Job that personal suffering is not always an indication of the discipline of God. But nonetheless, this couple would have lived under that scrutiny. And so that's the reason I believe that Luke is so clear and so careful to include God's assessment of their character. It is true that they had not been able to have a child, 
but it is not true that it was because of sin. In fact, God sees them as a faithful couple who loves him, and yet we can read between the lines that for the entirety of their lives, this has been a painful, difficult trial. The personal pain of a desire for a child unmet mixed with the pain of whispers from those outside. But understand, it's here right now. It may feel that we're just telling a story and we're just reading about historical facts, but it's right now, right here, that we should begin to have our, our antenna for the sovereignty of God going off like crazy. We're beginning to see the providence of God seeping through the cracks between the words and the verses. The barrenness of Elizabeth's womb is not a result of her sin. In fact, it's divinely orchestrated by God to accomplish his eternal purposes in and through her. We can rightly apply the words of Christ about the man born blind in John 9 to the situation of Elizabeth and Zacharias. Remember how John, or how records what Jesus said in John 9 about the blind man. It says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he would be born blind. You hear the theology there. The idea is he's blind, so there must have been sin that caused the blindness. That's what they just automatically assumed. Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. It's exactly true with Elizabeth and Zacharias not because of sin, but because of the sovereign plan of God to accomplish something that we would still be talking about today. By the way, this is a good place to stop just for a moment and remind ourselves that God never wastes a trial. God doesn't always promise to reveal to us the purposes behind our trials as clearly as he does here to Elizabeth and Zacharias, but understand he does promise us that there is one there is a purpose that's part of the divine plan that God is orchestrating. You know the verse, Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes all things, all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So while we're not promised that God's gonna tell us what that purpose is in every way, as clearly, obviously, as he does the forerunner of the Messiah, trust the Lord that he won't waste your trial either. It is for your spiritual good, for God's overall plan of redemption and for his glory. So may we be encouraged by the example that we see here. But this trial in the life of this godly couple is going to prove to be the means by which God gives an undeniable historical witness to the identity not only of John, but of his divine son. And that brings us to a second scene, which begins in verse eight. We'll call it the, the announcement, the announcement. Now, this scene is a longer scene. It runs from verse eight all the way through verse 17. So we won't make it all the way through this second scene, but it breaks down into multiple details, we'll call them. We're gonna look at the first few details of this second scene, the announcement. Detail number one, we'll call a providential assignment. A providential assignment, verses eight to 10. Read with me in verse eight. Now it happened 
that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now we'll stop there. Now at this point, again, this might just feel like historical background knowledge. You may have the sensation of let's get to it. Like what's the point? Uh, This seems to be dragging on. But if you read those verses and come away with that assessment, you've, you've just missed the extreme importance of the details that were just given to us. We saw a glimpse of the providence of God peeking through the clouds when we discussed the fact that Elizabeth was childless. But from here on out, God's sovereignty is all over the place. It shines forth as bright as the noonday sun. And we're intended to see the providence of God in each of the details that was just listed. Let me explain to you again why that is. Remember, we've already mentioned there are 24 divisions of priests. There's somewhere near 20,000 priests serving. And so Zacharias would be serving here for one week, one of his two weeks of the year. This is only two weeks out of the entire year that he's here. And in order for the, the priests to decide who was going to be able to do what thing, they, they chose a, a means of doing that that had been given to them throughout the Old Testament of casting lots. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. But we've learned from our study of Hebrews that the highest privilege that a priest could have would be the privilege of the high priest to go into the Holy of Holies behind the veil one day a year on the Day of Atonement. It's been a while since we've been in Hebrews, but hopefully you at least remember that much. We talked quite a bit about it. We'll talk more about it in the days to come. But for a non-high priest, so if you're just a regular priest, still from the bloodline of Aaron, but not from the high priestly family, the highest task that you could attain to was the privilege of burning incense on the altar of incense, which if you remember, sat right in front of the veil. We talked about it a lot in the book of Hebrews. It was as close as a person could get that was not the high priest to the literal presence of God. You don't get any closer than the altar of incense. Remember that the law commanded that there would be a morning and evening sacrifice and in conjunction with the morning and evening sacrifice, they were to go in and burn incense on this altar of incense. So twice daily, this would have occurred. This piece of furniture is in what we call the holy place. And it was a place you had to be a priest to enter. And so this was common for priests to get to, necess- to go into that room, but, but, but it was not common to be able to carry out this task. You remember there are only three pieces of furniture in that special room. There's the the table of showbread, there's a golden menorah, and there's this altar of incense right in front of that marvelous, magnificent veil. So to have the privilege of burning incense on the altar meant that you were allowed to venture as close as a person who wasn't the high priest could go. Understand this is the pinnacle of priestly service. This is the Super Bowl of serving as a priest. This is the highest moment. This is the thing you stand around in retirement and talk about, that time that you got to go and burn the incense on the altar of incense. And so again, there had to be a way 
to, to choose the person who got to do this because everybody wanted to do this and so they cast lots. Casting lots function practically something like flipping a coin or rolling dice, but understand there's a fundamental difference in flipping a coin and the Old Testament practice of, of, of casting lots because this was a prescribed method by God at several points in the Old Covenant of how God said he was going to reveal his will for decisions that were to be made. You can write down Joshua 18.6. This is how the promised land was divided. They cast lots. You can write down 1 Chronicles 24, verse 31. This is how they assigned the different divisions of priests. The 24 divisions, they decided those by casting lots. So under the old covenant, this was not mere superstition or a game of chance. They were essentially turning the issue over to God. They were saying, God, you tell us who it is you've chosen to get to carry out this special task. In this instance then, with that background, what we understand is that when the lot fell to Zacharias, that this was the sovereign will of God, that this would be the day that he would have the privilege to burn the incense on the altar. Notice it says they did this according to the custom of the priestly office and he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. History records that priests were only allowed this opportunity once in their lifetime. So once the lot fell to you, your name was taken out of the list moving forward, never again would you have the privilege to do this. This is truly a once in a lifetime opportunity. So Zacharias would have been waiting for this moment his entire life. It would have been the crowning privilege of his time of priestly service. So try to put yourself in his shoes just for a moment. Imagine you're living under the old covenant. Imagine there's still a physical temple and God is still manifesting his presence on earth there behind the Holy of Holies. And now imagine that you have the chance to walk as closely as a non-high priest person can walk to the very living presence of God. And that assignment has been given to you. Imagine the weight, the joy, the terror that would have come with such an assignment. We can't really quantify the emotions he must have felt when the lot fell to him. Zacharias, we've already heard, is a righteous man, so he would have rightly feared God. And when you have a right fear of God, you understand it is no small thing to come near him. It's no small thing to burn this incense on this holy, sacred altar. So we can feel the, the emotions he must have begun to feel as soon as the lot fell to him. And another detail is now added to this in verse 11. Detail number two we'll call a prayerful crowd. A prayerful crowd, verse 11. And an angel, I'm sorry, I'm going too far. I, I just gave it away. <laughs> verse 10. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. A whole multitude of people are praying outside at this hour. Now Luke doesn't specify whether or not Zacharias was chosen for the morning offering or the evening offering. Remember there were two every day, but most commentators agree that it was probably the evening sacrifice. And the reason is because of this crowd. 
that's mentioned here in verse 10. Daryl Bach says, this, says it this way, in first century Judaism, the time of the evening offering was altered so that preparations for it started around 2.30 in the afternoon. Taken to the altar about an hour later, this offering coincided with the time of evening prayer at the temple so that it was often well attended. So you, you have an, an evening prayer every day as a crowd would come to pray at the temple and they chose to sync up this offering with the time of evening prayer. So it was not uncommon at all to have a crowd for the evening offering. So while we can't be 100% sure, it seems likely that this assignment was the second offering of the day, the evening offering. Now, what was the point of the altar of incense? Well, the, when you burn that incense on the altar, it would smoke, it would give off a, an aroma and a smoke. That smoke would fill not only the holy place, but it would go under the veil into the holy of holies. It was symbolic of the prayers of the people. That was the point of the smoke. It was if the prayers of the people are rising up before the Lord. MacArthur describes it this way, the ascending Aromatic cloud of incense smoke symbolized the people's prayers of repentance, of confession and thanksgiving for the coming of Messiah, the peace of Jerusalem, the nation, the family, salvation, and for the coming kingdom. These are the, the kinds of things they would come and pray. It makes sense then that at the hour of prayer, you would have a physical group of people praying the kinds of prayers that they knew would be symbolized by the smoke that would come from the altar. So you have actual prayers going on outside the temple. You have the priest entering on behalf of the people. He would give a prayer at the altar of incense himself and then light that altar and the smoke would go up representing those prayers that were being prayed to the Lord. Now this is a key detail. Typically, after the priest offered the, 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 the incense on the altar, he would come out of the temple and address the crowd that was gathered there. William Hendrickson says it this way, the people gathered outside the sanctuary, but inside its courts are also praying in a prostate position uh, with their outstretched hands. Then they wait for Zechariah to return from the altar of incense and to proceed eastward to the steps in front of the sanctuary where the holy place and the holy of holies are. On these steps, Zechariah, accompanied by other priests, is expected to pronounce the Aaronic blessing on the people. This benediction will be followed by songs of praise, public offerings, etc. So this, this was the daily routine. The people are, are <coughs> excuse me, prostrate before the Lord, they're praying, waiting for the priest to come back out. And the priest would come out and he would say the same things, pronounce the blessing, they would sing together, this is the routine. So picture this, the people are praying, waiting for him to come back. They're not just there, a random crowd come and go praying. Everyone's praying, they watch Zachariah go in and they're praying until he comes out. Now that is we should see the providence of God. Because now we have witnesses, right? God has set this up in such a way that what he's about to do is going to be seen by a crowd of witnesses. And we'll see that's exactly what happens in the weeks to come. But understand the fingerprints of the sovereignty of God are all over this narrative. 
We have Zacharias serving this week of all weeks at the temple. We have the, the, the lot falling to him on this particular instance as an old man after he served the entirety of, life, of his life. It falls to him on this day. And we have this crowd of witnesses there praying, patiently waiting for him to return. That brings us to detail number three, an angelic announcement. An angelic announcement. This is verses 11 to 17. Verse 11, and an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. Now, don't forget the way we describe the probable emotional state of Zacharias at this point. Again, this is, this is the biggest moment of his priestly service in his entire life. This is what he's waited to do his whole life. Now he's there. All the weight of that is there. He's burning the, the, the incense on the altar. He's sensing the fact that God's manifestation of his presence is only separated by this veil. Is right there. I'm near him. I'm as close to him as I will ever be in my life at that moment an angel appears right in front of him. Now, how many of you are, are jumpy? Easily, easily startled. People like maybe in your family like to hide and scare you and things like that. Even if you're not jumpy, I think Stonewall Jackson would have jumped at this sight. This is a moment in which we take his emotions and the, the, the feeling that he must have had and now he sees this is not a vision, this is not a dream in his mind, this is a literal physical angel appearing right in front of him. Now, add to his emotional state some history and the moment gets even bigger. Because the last prophet to speak on behalf of God to the people of Israel was the prophet Malachi, 400 years prior to this moment. Malachi's last prophecy was 400 years ago. The people of Israel have sat in silence waiting for God to speak to them through another prophet for 400 years. Now, just to put that in contemporary language, I'm not good at math, but my iPhone said this was right. 400 years ago for us, 1623. I don't know anything about the year 1623. That was a long time ago. 1623, 400 years is a long time. You know, when we read the Bible, we can unintentionally, wrongly come away with the idea that God's just constantly talking to people. This is why it's such a popular part of Christianity today. People misunderstand and they read and they think just God just regularly talked to people and people were just seeing visions and angels are just popping up all over the place. So we should just expect them in our bedroom every day. That is, not what, this, that is not what the Bible teaches. This is 400 years of silence. So believe me when I tell you the last thing that Zacharias is expecting on his day to go in and give the, the incense on the altar is that he's gonna encounter an angel. And yet that's exactly what happens. And so with all of that in the backdrop, it's no wonder that we read in verse 12 that this was his response. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. Now that word troubled is, 
it's a little lackluster of a translation. The word, the Greek word means to cause inward turmoil, stir up, disturb, unsettle, throw into confusion. I think a stronger word is more appropriate for what Zacharias likely felt. I think a word like terrified would probably be a more accurate description of what this word means. This is a man that would have been shaken to the core. And we know that not just because we can put ourselves in his shoes, we know that because that is the response of everyone in in scripture when they encounter a holy angel. Just think of one other example later when the announcement of the birth of Christ takes place to the shepherds in Luke 2 verse 9 says, and an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened, scared to death is how we would say it. This is the natural response that a sinful human being ought to have when they encounter not only the presence of God, but even the presence of a holy angel who's coming from the presence of God. And so this is exactly what Zacharias does. We could picture him terrified, wondering what's about to happen. And thankfully the angel seeks to comfort him right away in verse 13. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Then he goes on to call him by name. Do not be afraid, Zacharias. And why shouldn't he be afraid? For your petition has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will give him the name John. Now there's a whole lot to unpack here. This is just the beginning of the angel's announcement. We'll continue on with the other descriptions that he details he gives next week. But there's enough here for us to unpack for the next several minutes. First of all, notice the encouragement not to be afraid. That also is a common uh, a phrase that an angel will use when, when they appear before a trembling person. When they have good news to tell, they say, don't be afraid. And that's a good clue that this is not an angel of judgment, but an angel to bring good news. It must have probably caught him off guard when the angel calls him by his first name, Zacharias. Clearly, this is an angel from the Lord, knows his name. And then the angel continues on with this great statement that is somewhat mysterious. It's caused a lot of ink to be spilled in commentaries, trying to put our finger on what is meant here when the angel says, you shouldn't be afraid for your petition has been heard. Your petition has been heard. I have to answer the question, what petition, what request? Is he referring to? As I mentioned, commentators are divided here. Some say this must only refer to the prayer for a child. It's an answer to their prayer for a child. And that, that makes sense contextually because after all, the very next thing the angel says is that your wife will bear a son. And so some say it must only refer to that prayer. Now, no doubt, Zacharias and Elizabeth would have prayed for a child. They would have prayed the entirety of their married life. But remember, Luke's already told us that Elizabeth is now past the age in which they would expect that to be physiological, physiologically possible. So it's not unreasonable that those prayers sadly had begun to wane. 
It also seems unlikely that Zacharias would have chosen this moment when he would have understood that his role was to be an intermediary. He was to represent the people before God. That was his job and to offer really very specific prayers on behalf of the people. Remember, there were certain things that were commonly to be prayed for at the hour of prayer. MacArthur listed several of them for us. Let me just remind you. That smoke symbolized prayers of repentance, confession and thanksgiving, the coming of Messiah, the peace of Jerusalem and the nation, the family, salvation and the coming kingdom. These are the kinds of things that not only the people outside are praying for, but they're the kind of things that Zacharias would have been tasked to pray for as he offers that smoke on the altar. And so I think it's unlikely that Zacharias sort of took this moment as a private moment with God to pray about his own personal struggles when he as a God-fearing man would have understood that his role as a priest was to represent the people as a whole. And so I think contextually, the answer to the question of what petition is being answered here, it's two things. It is a prayer to the historical, an answer to the historical prayers for a child, obviously, but it's also an answer to the prayer he just prayed for the salvation of the people and the coming of the Messiah. And we're gonna see that God in his grace, this, this is just an example of the bigness of our God. At the same time, God is going to answer this huge national prayer for the Messiah and the salvation of the people while also answering a very intimate personal prayer for a child, for this one couple. He's gonna bring the two together into one. This is the kindness of our God, the goodness of our God. What we see now is that the barren womb of Elizabeth was divinely ordained by God so that she would have a child at a time in her life when it was medically impossible. God chose for her to get pregnant now because he wanted her pregnancy to be talked about. He wanted people to say, hey, did you hear the news? Guess who's pregnant? Elizabeth. And they're thinking, which Elizabeth? This, this one, the one that, that's impossible. I know it's impossible, but Elizabeth is pregnant. That's the idea. This would have spread like wildfire. It's just the same idea that we've seen in the Old Testament time and time again. Abraham and Sarah, what happens there? God intentionally keeps Sarah from having a child because that child is to function as a sign, as a witness. It's the same thing here. Notice the angel is very clear that Zacharias is not to follow the sinful path of Abraham and try to fulfill this through some other woman that he takes as a wife. He says very clearly, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. It's going to happen through Elizabeth. And not only that, but God has so divinely arranged this event that he's even given the name of the child which customarily would have been the role of the father to choose the name of the child. And typically your firstborn in some way would have carried your own name and the family name. But here God chooses the name of the child. Again, Bach says it this way, the father usually names a child. God's naming a child shows that the child is important to his work. God has a plan for this boy, John, and John's name means Yahweh has been gracious. Yahweh has been gracious. 
somehow through this special boy, God will demonstrate his amazing grace. Now, I think we can all acknowledge that this is an incredible story and it's worthy of our attention. But also by stopping here this morning and leaving the rest for the weeks to come, it may leave us with a question, a couple of questions like, why is this particular story so important? And how exactly does this account tie into the Christmas story that's about Christ's birth? After all, this time of year is really a time that we celebrate the birth of Christ. So why are we talking about the birth of a man named John? And the answer to that important question will be made very clear in the weeks to come. We've already touched on it in the opening part of this message, but let me direct your mind again one more time to the history behind these events. And let me remind you that it's been 400 years since God has spoken to the people of Israel. But not just that, what was the very last thing that God said to the people of Israel 400 years ago? How did he close out his final words before he went silent. Listen to the very last words of the book of Malachi, Malachi verse, chapter four, verses five and six. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now, these are the very last words of the entire Old Testament. As I thought about that, I was reminded of the fact that an article I read says that scientists have discovered an, an underground oil chamber that was built in the era of World War II in Scotland that has now produced the world's longest echo on record to date. They fired off a blank round from a pistol in the midst of this oil chamber and it took 112 seconds for the echo to stop. And that's a Guinness Book World Record. But I want you to know that's not the longest echo in human history. By ending the prophecy to Malachi with these prophetic words, God intended for this prophecy to echo down through the ages. For 400 years, he wanted his people wrangling over this comment that I'm going to send you a prophet in the spirit of Elijah. Who is that? What does he mean by that? The Jewish people should have understood that the next step in God's plan of redemption towards the Messiah would not be the birth of the Messiah himself, but the birth of the prophet who would come in the spirit of Elijah. And so the next movement in history would not be the birth of Christ, but the birth of John. The reason that this story is so important is because if we can't prove that the forerunner has come, how can we prove that the Messiah to whom he testified has come? The story of John is intricately woven into the story of the birth of Christ. We can't overstate the importance of understanding just how clearly and providentially God made it plain that the special prophet who would come in the spirit of Elijah was none other than the man called John the Baptist. 
John came to prepare the way of the Lord. Let me ask you this morning as we draw to a close, is your heart personally prepared for the Lord Jesus Christ? Over the next two weeks, we're gonna see how exactly how John prepared the way of the Messiah. And I'll just go ahead and tell you, he did it by preaching repentance. He called the people back to repentance towards God, back to faith in the coming Messiah. Let me ask you this morning, have you repented of your sins and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? The preparation of the human heart for the reception of Christ comes only in one way. It is to humble yourself and understand that Jesus truly is the son of God who lived a perfect life and offered it as a sacrifice on the cross and rose again on the third day to new life. And he offers to anyone who will repent and believe salvation, forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to God our creator. But there is no other way. Is your heart personally prepared for the Messiah by the means of repentance and faith. If you come away with nothing from this Christmas series other than that, you will have done well because that is the key. Will we receive the Messiah that God so clearly testified really in every way that he could have, even to the point of testifying to the miraculous birth of his forerunner. And so as we close, let me just leave you with two points of application. Number one, marvel at God's sovereign grace. Marvel at God's sovereign grace. Do you see the sovereignty of God dripping from every word in this account? Only the eternal sovereign God could give a prophecy and then pause for 400 years and pick up right where he left off. It's mind blowing. But God is not only revealing his sovereignty here, but his incredible grace, because from Genesis to Revelation, what we see is that God sovereignly ordained, not just to bring all events to a, a certain end that he desired, but that end that he desired is a plan of redemption, a plan of grace, a plan to save a people for himself. So what we see here is not only a sovereign God, but a gracious God. I wanna give you an assignment over the next couple of weeks. I want you to study Luke 1, 5 to 25, and I want you to look for clear demonstrations of his sovereignty and clear demonstrations of his grace. And what you'll find is that there's ample things for us to chew on and take away from this wonderful historical account. But secondly, let me encourage you to be strengthened in your faith. Be strengthened in your faith. You know, so many times, particularly young believers are unnerved by the fact that there are so many religions in the world. I mentioned this earlier. It seems to especially be a point of concern for those who grow up in a Christian household. At some point, you've been taught the gospel and the Bible is true your whole life, but at some point, every person has to honestly face the question, how do we know that what we believe is true and what everyone else believes is false? Now, the answer to that is multifaceted. But we have one part of that answer even here in our text today. And that is the fact that the Bible not only records 
the inspired truth of God, it records for us true historical accounts of how God in real time in human history testified publicly to his truth. God has left us with a witness. As I said in the beginning, he's not asked us to have a blind faith. He said, this is what is true. And here are real human historical events to back it up. It's not a blind faith. Why does Zacharias get chosen by lot to offer incense on this day of all day? Why did God make this righteous couple suffer through the pain of childlessness for so many years? Why did God wait for this angelic vision to come to Zechariah while he was inside the temple instead of some other place in his normal life? It's all because it was an orchestration for God to show us this is a real testimony. These things are true and you can believe it. Listen, if you struggle to believe by faith the things of scripture, I want you to ask yourself, what more could God have done throughout human history to demonstrate the truthfulness of the gospel? What else do you want him to do? Do you wanna be like the Pharisees who stood experiencing miracle after miracle and still demanding a sign? Because essentially that's what it is to refuse to have faith in the scriptures. He's done it all. The only thing left to do is repent and believe. What a gracious God we serve. I look forward to studying the rest of this account in the weeks to come. Let's pray. Lord God, strengthen our faith. God, as we read these things, help us to remember that our faith is not built on sinking sand. It's built on the rock. It's built on the ways in which you have testified to these things, chiefly in your son and his life, death, and resurrection. But even beyond that, so many tangible proofs that stand under our faith. And yet we confess that we need your grace even to believe. We need your grace to persevere. And so God, we ask you would help us in these things. God, as we enter into this Christmas season of 2023, strengthen our faith, open our mouths, embolden our speech to speak of the wonders of our God and the wonders of the gospel. Help us not to waste the opportunities around uh, even our own kitchen tables to proclaim the goodness of our God. We love you, we thank you for Christ and how you've so clearly testified to him. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.